The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right, well, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll consider how believers can seek to apply wisdom to how we meet people in experiencing physical suffering, help to alleviate that in some ways, and, and think about how the gospel um, interacts with, with our methods. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the gospel that as we consider suffering and trials and difficulties, temptations, all of the things about this present world that are affected by our own sinful inclinations and spiritual warfare, the effects of the fall even in creation, we are thankful that we have a sympathetic high priest in Jesus who knows what it means to live life as a true man who was tempted in every way yet without sin, who is the man of sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And so we thank you that you are not distant from us, that you know better than we do what it is to be tempted and tried. Uh, We thank you for your compassion for us. Know that we are but dust. And yet you have put your spirit into us by your grace through faith in Jesus. And so we pray that we would have a gospel-centered attitude towards suffering, that you would give us the grace to see the, the trials and difficulties of this present life pale by comparison to the glories to be revealed to us. We pray that we would minister well to other people in the name of Jesus, that we would not stop at seeking to meet physical needs, but that we would seek to introduce people to Jesus. And uh, we pray that we would have an eternal perspective on all of these things. Be glorified in our discussion today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just a very quick reminder of the last couple of meetings. We've spent some time considering unbiblical responses to suffering, which for, our, for ourselves and for people that we know would present us with some red flags where uh, correction or, or warning or reproof uh, may be needed. So if we see ourselves or people, you know, giving lip service to God, but living as if God weren't a present reality, that's a big concern. Or looking for satisfaction or joy or contentment in other places, in other things. Even things that are not inherently bad, uh, but certainly things, you know, addictions and um, you know, sinful things that a person might do. Running to those for comfort is certainly cause for concern. A mindset that thinks we deserve better, that makes us bitter towards God or resentful because you know, in this give-and-take relationship we can sometimes want with God, I feel like I'm doing all the giving and God's just doing all the taking. And you know, I don't want to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I kind of like the giving side of that, so thinking we deserve better. Thinking God can't help, so things that would show a, a, a mistrust in God as He has revealed His character that he's somehow not powerful or not wise or not good in dealing with us. So those would present red flags to us that we want to lovingly address with other people or 
if those are things that we are going with, certainly that we would want people to deal lovingly, lovingly and correcting uh, with us. Uh, certainly that's not an exhaustive list, but I think um, if we think about our own, our own suffering, maybe things in the past, maybe things in the present, things we've experienced with other people, you might see evidence of these, and you might have more to add to that list. But we want to fight for faith, and we want to fight for faith and help people fight for faith with the means of grace that God provides to us in His Word, in prayer, in the church. We talked about singing. Um, God gives us means of grace for growing in godliness, for persevering. Uh, he, at the, I think it's at the end of Jude. Um, it says, keep yourselves in the faith, and then it's followed... Well, I'm just going to... If you've got a Bible, turn open to Jude. He is able to keep you from stumbling. Is that how it is, Charlie? Um, rather than a poor paraphrase. All right. Yeah, and so in verse 21, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24 in the doxology, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So, you know, we see over and over and again in Scripture this kind of interplay. It's the same thing in Philippians 2. Um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we want to take everything that God supplies to us and the power that he gives us in the Spirit and put to work the things that he is giving us. Paul talks about working harder than any of the others, but it was God who was supplying him the power to do that. So we're not taking the credit for working out these means of grace that God gives to us. He gives us the means, He gives us the power, and we work in the things that He supplies. So He gets, I think I quoted somebody else Sunday before last, um, we get the grace, He gets the glory. These are means of grace. And then certainly we can encourage one another with those things, with the Word of God, with prayer. We talked a little bit about hospitality and our presence with one another. And so we want to kind of build on that today, especially kind of the idea of the ministry of hospitality, serving one another's physical needs, thinking biblically about the relief of physical suffering, not only within our body, but especially uh, outside the body of Christ. I think we, we mentioned this last week, this church and... and this having, this having been my only church body, I, I don't know, you know what other churches are like in terms of meeting one another's physical needs, but we're like the meal church. If somebody is sick, it's like meals. You're getting a meal. And even if it's not an email going out to the church as a whole, y'all, I'm sure y'all are well aware of this and you're probably doing this, but I'll hear in passing like, oh, such and such had this going on and such and such took them a meal. Um, we minister to one another through meeting one another's physical needs on a routine basis. Meals, child care, dropping off flowers. I receive cards in the mail from members of the church routinely just expressing gratitude, uh, letting me know that they're praying for me. Those are all just little marks of love that are characteristic of this body for sure. And I think that that's probably not uncommon in, in Christian churches. That we, that we minister to one another in very practical ways. And when we think about physical suffering, I think it's important that we consider this because on your packet, if you've got one, a person's spiritual life is not disconnected from their physical life. If you look on your verse packet, 
Galatians 2, 9 and 10. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So even as the apostles are going out and doing ministry, the gospel is being proclaimed, they have a, a particular concern for people with physical needs, that the proclamation of the gospel is of the utmost importance. We're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And yet there is a concern for the poor. They, they want to meet people's physical needs, even as their greater desire, I think, is to proclaim the gospel, to call sinners to repentance. And from a bigger picture perspective, I think at least part of the reason I would give for that is that we are whole people. It is not a, a Christian doctrine that the physical world that we live in and our physical bodies are somehow bad and to be despised. That's a product of Gnosticism, that the only thing that is good and worth keeping is that which is spiritual. We are physical and spiritual beings, and ministry to a person's physical needs, I think, reflects what we see as the inherent goodness of what God has established in creation. The physical body that you live in, the world that we live in, is not to be despised. It's not going to be eradicated. We will not, for eternity, exist in some ethereal, spiritual, disembodied state. And so when we meet people's physical needs, I think that is a way with the right perspective of saying your physical body, your physical suffering, the suffering that exists in the world, this is not the world as it was made originally and not how it will be for all eternity. And so when the kingdom of God comes, you see Jesus ushering in that with physical healing and subduing creation. He's showing you a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like in its fullness when he heals the blind and casts out demons and heals the sick and even raises the dead. So we are created as part of a physical world which was originally good and will be perfected for all of eternity. And so even though the Bible doesn't anticipate some utopia before the return of Christ, it is good and right to pursue the relief of physical suffering as a representation of God's coming kingdom, as a representation of God's love and grace, love and grace accompanied by, and even for the greater purpose of, seeing the gospel advance. Does that make sense? So, I have sensed sometimes in, you know, the, the Western church especially, that we can sometimes pit gospel proclamation and the idea of social justice against one another. And it's like we almost want people to choose. Like, are you on the gospel preaching side, or are you on the social justice side? And I think conservative evangelicals tend to want to steer clear of the idea of social justice. It's almost become a pejorative thing where that's kind of the liberal, you're not really interested in the gospel, you know, you just, you know, you want to give people clean drinking water and who cares about the gospel? And then you've got other people saying, well, what good is the gospel if it doesn't help people? And like, have y'all ever sensed that in in the, the modern church, the idea of like it's got to be one or the other. You can be for social justice or you can be for real evangelism, but like you can't be both. And here in Galatians 2, 
the apostles are dividing up, and it's like, Paul, it seems like you're called to the Gentiles. Peter, it seems like you guys are called to stay there in Jerusalem and minister primarily to the Jews. Can we all agree that we should be ministering to the poor in the midst of all this? And they're like, yeah, thumbs up. Let's, we we want to pay special attention to those who are suffering physically as we go. It doesn't seem like the apostles drew that line between you can be a social justice warrior or you can be an evangelist, and I think we, we don't need to either. We don't need to confuse social justice with the gospel, but we do need to see how in the proclamation of the gospel, it is right and good to serve people in Jesus' name. And so we don't want to call missions and evangelism the social justice things that we do, but I think we can agree, like, providing people clean drinking water, even as we point them to the living water that's available in Jesus, is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. There is grace and mercy that comes from God and, and meets people in various situations in need. And for those of us who have the ability, we're going to talk about that today, where we have um, what we'll call moral proximity to these things, the ability to help people. I'll ask Vicki to kind of share a thought that she, um, was something that was shared with her years ago here, how we think about where we might have the ability to participate in alleviating these things. And I think one of the reasons we might kind of push back on these things, especially in the world around us, is, looking back to your packet, the amount and the variety of needs in our family, in our friends, these ever-widening you know, circles, our church, our community, the world around us, can be absolutely overwhelming. I mean, if you just turn on the TV and see all of the things that are going on in the world, you could be very overwhelmed, like, oh, so what am I supposed to do? A- am I supposed to, you know, give to missions and give to support the Red Cross and the, you know, World Hunger Fund and, you know, efforts that are, you know, helping refugees from, like, where, so where do I start? Do I have to do it all? How, how is it that I think about that? when I look, you know, even in my own church and my community and see so much brokenness and the effects of sin, how do I think about this? So I don't know that I'll be able to answer all those questions. I'm certain I will not be able to answer all those questions today. But in the materials that we're using, I think there's a helpful rubric for beginning to think about and pray about how we, how we might do that. So it's amount and variety of pain, <clears throat> Needs. Just the reality that there is so much in the world, and I think Michael has said this before, one of the things about the technology of the world we live in is we have unprecedented access to information about the world around us that people in generations past simply don't. I mean, we knew about an earthquake in Japan probably as it was happening, you know? You get on-the-ground camera view bullets and bombs being fired, things going on in Israel and Ukraine. We have such access to information that I think that kind of adds to the feeling of just being overwhelmed by all of the things in which people have needs. Yeah, and... Our inability to do something about all of those things, I don't think makes that inclination or that desire a bad thing. If you have a compassionate heart towards the needs of other people, where did that come from? Well, God is compassionate. God is rich in mercy. 
God does not desire for people to perish. So, shouldn't His people have the same compassion towards lostness and suffering? It's made a little more complicated by the fact that that same woman, um, in her interactions, is pretty open. Yeah, and I've, I've heard that term used before. The idea of a blind spot. It's like, I wonder what ours is, or what ours are. It's kind of hard to know what your blind spots are, because... You're blind to them, right? <laughs> maybe this is one of them. Maybe, maybe some of us, maybe I could speak for myself, I uh, am often jaded and cynical uh, towards the poor. Um, and perhaps there's room for me, certainly, to think in a different way about the relief of suffering, compassion towards those in need. Um, but these are, these are difficult things to, to think about, especially as the circles that we're talking about get ever wider. Um, I think we'll see in Scripture that our responsibility to our family and to our church family, we, we have the closest moral proximity to those, but as we get further outside of them, we need to think about or consider how we should think about those things. Um, the first thing that I think is a helpful reminder under your heading, love is the posture of a Christian. Well, I guess that's the reminder. Love is the posture of a Christian. Um, but the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 is concluded with the instruction to likewise show mercy. You're familiar with the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I assume. Um, at the end of that, well, you, so you know the, the context. This lawyer is wanting to put Jesus to the test. He's asking Jesus about eternal life. They have a conversation about the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus tells them, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, and he wants to justify himself, and he says, and who is my neighbor? That sets up the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan uh, helping the man who was beaten and left for dead, providing for his needs. And when Jesus comes back to addressing the lawyer, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we, we have this instruction to show mercy, to love our neighbors, and it seems like Jesus has a pretty broad definition of what, it, what a neighbor is. Um, what, how, how do you think we should understand when, when the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, what, what definition of neighbor are you working with? I'm the lawyer saying, who is my neighbor? Yeah. I mean, I would say yes, that that's at least part of the answer, right? Your, your actual neighbor is your neighbor. So let's, let's take, the, uh, let's take the, the command or the principle kind of in two parts, love and neighbor. Is there anyone with whom you could interact where love is not the appropriate posture? I maybe put too many negatives in that sentence. What should be the posture of you towards anybody you come in contact with? Right, it's, it's love. Okay, so that, I mean, it's love that's, that's universal, okay? So everyone that we come in contact with, our posture towards them should be love. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in trying to define love because 
we're thinking about physical suffering. So in, here, the, the idea is providing relief. Um, so love is going to take different forms depending on what the need is and what is best for the person. Uh, it may not be a, a comfortable or desirable thing for that person, uh, what is actually truly loving to them. A book that I would recommend that I forgot to put on your bibliography, this is especially helpful for churches, is a book called When Helping Hurts. Um, thinking about uh, like poverty alleviation and ministering to people with physical needs, that's a good uh, book, especially for people in leadership. Um, it's called When Helping Hurts. I cannot remember the author. Um, that, that may be the subtitle. I think you've got it. Um, so love is the common denominator, and I think using Timothy's definition, I might say something like, it's anyone and everyone as we have opportunity. The, the opportunity is the idea of this, this is actually meeting, meeting me somewhere. Um, and I think we're also going to see, hopefully, a helpful distinction between things that we ought to do and things that we may do. And that kind of gets at the feeling potentially guilty over all the things that we're not doing. That may be a, a reflection of pride that assumes if I don't do it, then it won't get done, or I must do all of the good things. And that's putting way too much emphasis on ourselves. So that guilt that we sometimes feel may be a product of pride somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. God has given me assignments. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to tend the garden that you're in. Um, and so we want to think about as that we see the fence around our garden and we know of suffering that's going on outside, what should be my attitude towards that? What is my responsibility? How should I individually, how should my family, how should my church, in our case as Southern Baptist, cooperation of churches, how should we think about that? Um, okay, so we might say that our neighbor is anyone and everyone that we have the opportunity to show mercy to. People that are crossing our path, as Timothy said. So that's a helpful transition to the next point on, that, on your packet, is the gospel that reminds us that we were the man on the road in need of salvation from Jesus. And Jesus is the one who rescued us at great cost, the cost of his own life. Ephesians 2.1 you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So when we, when we hear that parable, we need to remember from a gospel perspective, first, we are the, the man left for dead and not the good Samaritan. And it's from the perspective of recognizing that we have been rescued by the mercy of God that we then, I think, are empowered um, and pushed out by the Spirit to... Show mercy to love our neighbor. If you, if you don't have an appreciation for the great forgiveness that you have in Christ, then you will probably be an unforgiving person. Forgiven people forgive. People to whom great mercy has been shown, show mercy. So we were the man on the road. Then love is to be the disposition of Christians towards all people. Um, if you look on your verse packet starting in Matthew and then going down to 1 Corinthians and Colossians, I think these are things we're familiar with. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul in 1 Corinthians, let all that you be done, let all that you do be done in love. Colossians 3.14, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So that is to be the disposition of Christians towards all people. Friends, family, neighbors, enemies. That's a hard one. Look in Leviticus 19 on your verse packet. And we can see some specific ways we might practically love our neighbors in different ways. Um, we're going to see, if you're, if you're filling in the blanks, um, loving our neighbors with our possessions, with our words, with our actions, with our judgments, and with our attitudes. And I think hopefully have those on the thing. I'll come back to them. If you, if you are like me and you've got that just compulsive need, like I have to get all the blanks filled in or it doesn't count that I came to building blocks, I'll help you out. It's okay. I'm the same way. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So with the... Uh, with the things that we have as stewards, our possessions, you know, you see the idea of not gleaning your field, completely leaving things for the poor and for the sojourner. Elsewhere, the Lord reminds them that you were sojourners. I provided for you. How many times does the Lord say in that passage, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord? He's reminding them who you are as people and how you live is rooted in who I am. I am merciful. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am a provider. I rescued you. I carried you through as sojourners. You go and do likewise. So with the things that we have as stewards, with our words, with our actions, with our judgments, with our attitudes, and you can see in Leviticus 19 a special attention paid to the poor and the needy. Those that don't have sufficient food or maybe they're passing through the deaf, people in legal cases, showing no partiality but seeking to execute justice and righteousness. Now let's talk about moral proximity. And then, to whom are we responsible is the question that we want to try to address with the idea of moral proximity. I like this definition from Kevin DeYoung. Moral proximity refers to how connected we are to someone by virtue of familiarity, kinship, space, and time. Moral proximity would be different than geographical proximity. So, 
Timothy's coming out of Aldi, and there's a person asking for money. His geographical proximity is immediate. If Timothy also has a direct family member in need, I'm just, I'm, if you're put in a situation where you're having to choose, for example, in levels of priority, your moral proximity to your family, to your church family, is closer than your geographical proximity to that person. That is not me saying you shouldn't help that person. But geographical proximity is different than moral proximity. We have instructions in the Bible, specifically 1 Timothy 5.8, on caring for our families, that moral proximity deals with familiarity, kinship, space, and time. So there are other things to consider than simply, I am aware of this need. I have levels of responsibility I need to think about. So moral proximity does not mean that we should only care for people to whom we are closely connected. But here's another quote from DeYoung and Gilbert in a different book. It means what we ought to do in one situation is what we may do in another. What we ought to do in one situation is what we may do in another. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I also don't want to draw some um, line that says the only kind of help is financial. We, we could serve people in a variety of ways, some of which may be financial if that's really the root of the need. But there are all many kinds of good works that God has prepared for us, even in assisting people in need, that aren't necessarily just a financial transaction that takes place, which is one of the reasons I like that book, When Helping Hurts, that causes us to think about, in especially the alleviation of, the poor, of poverty, what is actually the most loving and helpful thing to do, not just in the moment, but the medium term and the long term. So as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the New Testament places on Christians a particular obligation to one another within the household of faith. Jesus says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Many, many years ago, I was teaching on that passage, and the way that I described um, that command for Christians to love one another is an internal love with an external purpose. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. There's a special kind of obligation, a privileged obligation, I would say, that we have to one another within the body of Christ doesn't mean that the only people that you should show love and mercy to are Christians, but you have a special obligation to your family of faith. You also have a special obligation to your family. 1 Timothy 5.8 is a little bit further down your verse packet. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Timothy mentioned one of the kind of grids of questions that you might ask if that's the situation you're presented with is genuinely asking a person if they have family able to care for them, if they have a church family able to care for them. Again, those don't just become like checkboxes of, okay, if the answers to those two questions were no, then I'm sorry, I'm not going to help you. You've got to be prayerful and pursue wisdom in those things. But I do, I do think the idea of moral proximity gives us something of a framework for distinguishing between the oughts and the mays 
of ministry. If you have a family member in need and you have the opportunity to help them, you ought to help them. 1 Timothy 5.8 Provide for your relatives. If you have a, a member of your church family in need and you're aware of that and you have the means and opportunity to do that, do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's why our church has a member care fund. I, don't, I think it's pretty widely known. If you didn't know this, we have a fund for the specific purpose that you can contribute to of meeting the physical needs of our members as needs arise. And that is something that we contribute to collectively that we have the ability to do that with. So, again, it's another one of those, do I have to meet every single need? That also kind of betrays the corporate nature of the Christian life if our assumption is the only way that I can even participate in meeting this need is if I do it myself. You are the member of a church that has funds for the purpose of serving its own members, that contributes to the cooperative program, that sends missionaries and does... Uh, 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 mercy ministry around the world. So, again, this is not, I'm just not trying to just ease your conscience and feel like you're getting off the hook here. That, that, that's not the purpose. But it is to say that there is a corporate nature of this as well. It's not just you and people. It's us together and even the global body of Christ coming together and cooperating in different ways. So we've got to be careful not to assume from a prideful, prideful position that, well, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And so, therefore, I must do everything. And in the midst of that, we don't want to forget that, like, Peter and John and the lame man outside the temple, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. Well, the person coming and asking you for money, potentially, no, not potentially, they need to hear the gospel. They could be a believer, and they need to hear the gospel too. And so, we also don't, again, we don't want to divide this between your ministry to them, even if the, what you feel convicted about that the Lord is impressing upon me a desire to help this person in some physical, tangible way. Okay, but the gospel, that, that might get them through today, right? They still are dealing with being under the wrath of God for all eternity, potentially, if they're not a Christian. So, again, Go, preach the gospel, remember the poor. It's, it's both. It's not, it's not either or. We have people that will come in after services. We get visits at the office. We get phone calls all the time. And that sort of thing, when you talk to a lot of people and you hear a lot of the same stories, this is where I have tended over the years to become more skeptical and, and jaded and it leaves you just kind of with a bad taste in your mouth about doing that kind of ministry because for me, there's always this feeling in the back of my mind like, is his wife really in the hospital? If I, if I fill up his gas tank, is it really going to help him you know, get back to Mississippi? Is that really what's going on? Because you hear a lot of the same stories and uh, you, you can become a skeptic. And that's not to say that we shouldn't seek to show discretion with what we've been entrusted with. We don't want to be wasteful. Um, and we certainly don't want to contribute to people worsening their situation. But taking all of those things on ourselves 
and not praying for wisdom and help and direction and looking to the counsel of other people and even good resources and ministries out there that can help, I think you'll find yourself in that situation more often. Um, but the idea of moral proximity can help us filter through those situations and go, is this an ought to or is this a may? And then from there, consider what, what we might do. There are other considerations that I hope we'll get to, but um, we, what we ought to do in one situation is what we may do in another one. If you compare 1 John 3.17 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this can help give a further, um, they can help us further distinguish between the oughts and mays of helping. For the sake of time, I'll let you read those on your own. To kind of sum it up, John is addressing meeting the needs to a brother or sister within your family of faith. Paul is talking about raising money for believers in another place. And the language they use is different. Our special obligation to one another, even within this church body, is, is different because of its moral proximity, if I may use that term, than to, to others. Think about those concentric circles. Your family, your church, your, maybe your actual neighbors, your co-workers, getting out into, you know, the people on the per perimeter of that might be earthquake victims in Japan. They're, for most of us in here, probably pretty far removed from where you are today. Does that mean you can't or shouldn't help them? Not necessarily, but moral proximity helps us think about that. And it also helps us think about, one, you can pray for anyone and everyone. If you have a concern for earthquake victims in Japan, okay, pray for them. You're, you're ultimately not going to be the one who meets their needs no matter what you do. Pray for them. As we get further away in moral proximity to people, and as you have concerns and, and you're thinking about praying, one of the things that I have changed in my own kind of prayer life, especially when I think about unreached people groups or Christians who are suffering, is praying for believers who are closer in proximity to them to have an awareness and ability and equipping to serve them. So right now on Wednesday nights, we're praying for uh, Christians in Malaysia, and we're praying for an unreached people group in Malaysia. I'm praying for Christians who are already in Malaysia to go and share the gospel with their neighbors, even as we're praying for the Lord to send missionaries over there. So if, if you think about proximity and you have concerns, pray for people who are closer in proximity to them to, to serve them. Does that make sense? So you can pray for anyone and everyone. That is a real service to people. And you might, that might change the way you pray for people. It may not be really about you at all. It may be about the people who are closely connected to them. One of the things that we ought to be praying for for people in Japan is for Christians in Japan. Not only how they've been affected, but their ability to love and serve their neighbors. Um, okay, so recognizing our own limitations, we can think, in, think about proximity in terms of family. We already read 1 Timothy 5.8. The local church, 1 John 3.11, 16 and 17. Other Christians, we looked at Galatians 6.10, especially to the household of faith. And then further out towards all people in need as we have opportunity. Think about the Good Samaritan. You might be walking down the road and find somebody beaten and bloodied. Probably a good indication in the providence of God that he has put you there to help in some way, right? You go and likewise show mercy to anyone and everyone as you have opportunity. So there are going to be people all over um, 
that we don't even know about, that we don't have the opportunity or even awareness to serve. That maybe is even a further step out because there are things, that, at least from our perspective, that are, we are purely entrusting all of that to the sovereign goodness of God. You know about earthquake victims in Japan. But I would say we probably have no awareness of 99.9% of the suffering going on in the world around us. And we have to entrust that God knows all of those things and that he has seen to it that ultimately his goodness and justice will prevail. So suffering, physical suffering in the world around us, I think should probably increase humility in us. Uh, and free us from the guilt that comes from not being able to meet all of the needs. You don't even know all of the needs. You don't know a fraction of the needs. Um, and it also should humble us that God is pleased, it seems, in His providence to use us in His work. He doesn't have to. Um, all right. Priority of need. Oh, before we move on from that, let me say one more thing. I think another part of this uh, rubric or equation, if you will, in thinking about moral proximity and our responsibility to people, people have particular interests and desires. Like Lynn LaFoy is our Operation Christmas Child person. It's very clear Lynn wants to see the gospel shared with children in need by providing gifts. Tangible gifts of love that meet practical needs accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel. Does that mean you must share that same desire? No. That's a special desire that she has that it seems many in our church have also had over the years. And so we've said, well, we're going to put some money aside and contribute to that project, and we give items, you know, if you want to. That's a may. That's not a must. That's a may. My family sponsors a compassion child. Some of you in here might sponsor a compassion child. That's a may. We had a desire to support a child in need in Africa. We found one a similar age to Angelica, and we did that as a family. That is a may. That is not a must or an ought. You might contribute to specific ministries or missionaries. Those are all wonderful mays that probably reflect your particular desires and interests. It is okay to have particular things that we are burdened for that we want to support. So those are some examples of where things in the May category meet your own particular interests and, and desires. Uh, and those don't have to weigh on the consciences of, of other people. Um, I feel like this is a good time for you to share the thing that you said. Yeah. And especially for things that are closer into our proximity, family, church, family, especially that, that, that close circle of moral proximity, I think that's a wonderful attitude to take because our awareness of it may very well mean that our proximity to it, the Lord has something prepared for us to do. Yeah. Um, all of, none of these things are meant to be any way to either justify selfishness, where we go, well, that's outside of my garden, so I don't care. We don't, we don't want to justify selfishness. But the other extreme, like Timothy pointed out, is that just being weighed down with guilt of, I just constantly feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, we, we get into the 
you know, legalism there of, okay, have I done enough good works today? Is my conscience clean? Um, is it going to be more tomorrow? We get away from the gospel of grace when guilt is what motivates our behavior. So we don't want to justify selfishness. We don't want to be motivated by guilt. Prayerfulness is one key antidote in that, to ask the Lord for wisdom. Is this a situation that you are bringing to my attention for the purpose of helping in some way? Okay, so you're talking about just the rhythms of church life where there are... Daily rhythms of church life. Okay. And somebody just lives their daily life. You do not have the problems that this person has. Yeah. And then we come and we sit in the same church. Well... There's a way to really make people I'm going to Jesus juke what you just said, oh, okay? okay? okay. All, right. All right. I'm going to hijack what you said and just turn it into completely different, okay? One thing I would say is if there is a church body, if this is a church body in which those two people are members of the same church, there is evidence that something is happening where those barriers, the people are not sensing them to the point where they can't coexist within the same body. So as, as we see racial or socioeconomic or whatever kind of differences that exist between people like that inside the same church body, I would say, praise the Lord, Ephesians 2, he's tearing down the walls of hostility between people and bringing together one new man. So that's the Jesus Jew part of this. That's not to say that every single one of us in here is just nailing it when it comes to how we interact with people but it's a reminder then that our unity together in the body is not the color of my skin or what's in my bank account or my educational background or my, uh, you know, my pedigree or whatever. We are saying in being members of this church that our unity is in the gospel. So um, on like a practical level, I don't know if you have ideas about like where that meets your conversation or your... Well, I can, I can say that. Yeah, from one perspective, this kind of just came to me as you shared that, is we should probably be careful what we affirm in other people and the things that we talk about in ourselves. Affirm, so if our unity is in the gospel, then affirm the fruit of the gospel in that person's life. So um, there is a, a member of our church, probably in a, a lower uh, socioeconomic status, that I have seen such spiritual growth in over several years who goes out of the way to be an encourager to me and to others in our church, and that is far more valuable than what could be written in six figures on a check and put into the offering plate. You know what I mean? Like, the, the rewards in heaven that I anticipate being born out of what the Spirit is doing in that person's life is not quantifiable in dollars and cents. So I think we need to look for ways to affirm that in people, and if our conversations are more gospel-centered, hopefully those things, that will reflect the unity that we're saying that we have. Um, so I want to yeah, affirm that, yes. And it, I think it is a mark of charity and compassion that your inclination is to want to be careful with where the, where the rejoicing goes because you recognize where people's sorrows have. But we should rejoice with those who rejoice. And so that... That's where this can get a little tricky. And, you know, you'll feel, you know, maybe some unsettledness about these things. And I certainly don't want you to do anything uh, to violate your conscience. Um, but I guess that's all I'll say. We need to be able to weep with those who weep. 
and rejoice with those who rejoice. And so, um, in a way that is not flashy or self-centered, but that exalts the Lord, we ought to be able to share both kinds of things with one another. And that does call for wisdom in thinking about how do I go about sharing my joy in this with a person who has a lot of sorrow in that same kind of situation. And that's not necessarily easy, and I think it is a mark of love that you have a concern about that. But that shouldn't swing to the other end of not pressing on someone, even because you're going to be suffering in ways that other people have joys. When Catherine got in her accident, and nobody else in here had a granddaughter who was going through a health trial like that, you still are called to rejoice with us who are rejoicing, even as we're called to weep with you who's weeping. It's not just physical needs that are going to be like that. So if you flip it around and go, if I was in the position of a sufferer, I know in my heart I still should be praising the Lord and rejoicing with my brother or sister who, for whatever situation. So all that to say, let's not withhold our causes of praising the Lord if that is our desire, if we want to see the Lord praised for the gracious things that he is doing, we need to share in those things together. Um, we're more than out of time. I want to read just the, the last quote that I have under your last heading uh, that reminds us of the priority of need, which is a reminder that the gospel is of the utmost importance from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. So all the wonderful things that we might do in ministry to other people should not be for the sake of just doing good things for other people. But the gospel is the best thing. The gospel is of the utmost importance, and the gospel is the only thing that will satisfy eternally. This is a, a story from a missionary. When our missionary friend Mike McComb tried to introduce protein into the diets of the largely illiterate Guatemalan farmers, it was a masterful combination of expertise, training, and strategy. He started his work towards the end of the murderous civil war. We lived there with him off and on over the course of six years, working in the malnourishment clinic in the village. During that time, Mike also faithfully shared the gospel. But when Mike noticed it was the gospel that allowed protein to get to the people, but Mike noticed it was the gospel that allowed protein to get to the people. When the gospel was understood and accepted in villages, men stopped getting drunk and beating their wives. As they attended church, they started to attend to their crops and their children's education. Tomas, the local mayor, told me that it was only when the gospel came to the E-Hill lands that real change happened. Mike says that the preaching of the gospel did more to eliminate hunger than fish farms or crop rotation ever did. We must never forget that the gospel brings more long-term social good than any aid program ever developed. And so, as people are transformed by the gospel, it makes them into the kind of people who are loving. And so, let's not think that you can't do any social good by preaching the gospel. We have plenty of evidence that it is the proclamation of the gospel that is what brings about lasting change in the lives of people. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.